I'm Jen White, and this is a special live taping of 1A from the Boulder Theater in Boulder, Colorado. Wildfires are a growing threat in the West. Climate change is only making them more intense and more frequent. They're a threat this community knows well. Last December, the Marshall Fire destroyed more than 1,000 homes and buildings just south of where we're sitting right now. It was the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history. One person died and another is still missing. We're here as part of our Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations across the country, including KUNC here in Northern Colorado. Remaking America looks at how our democracy and our government is or is not working for us. So how prepared is Colorado for the next big one? How can communities become more resilient against wildfires and other climate threats? And how do you recover? when it happens. With us on stage is Congressman Joe Neguse. He represents Colorado's 2nd Congressional District, which includes Boulder, Fort Collins, and many of the high country ski towns. He's a member of the House Natural Resources Committee and the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. Congressman Neguse, we're so glad you're here. Thank you. I'd also like to welcome Professor Katie Dickinson. She's a professor in the Colorado School of Public Health's Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at CU Anschutz. She's leading a research team surveying residents about how to better respond to disasters like the Marshall Fire. Professor Dickinson, welcome. And also with us is Rod Moraga. He's chairperson of the Colorado Prescribed Fire Council and a volunteer firefighter with the Left Hand Fire Department. He's also a fire analyst with Precisely. That's a data analysis firm. In 2010, he lost his home to the Four Mile Canyon Fire. Rod, we're glad to have you here. Um, Congressman Nagoose, I just want to hear what was going through your mind as you were touring the devastation of the Marshall Fire. You know, it's, it's hard to describe in words the devastation uh, that the Marshall Fire wreaked within our community, as you said, over a thousand homes. But until you see it for yourself, literally entire subdivisions that were burned to the ground in an hour's time. Uh, just to put it in context, Colorado is no stranger to wildfires and to, in fact, large fires. Uh, but in the past few years, the wildfires have become far more pervasive, more intense, more frequent. In this particular case, you had a fire that lasted less than 18 hours and literally burned through urban neighborhoods uh, that are far outside of what we normally think of as the wildland urban interface or the WUI. Uh, it really, for us, for our community, uh, was a watershed moment. And we continue uh, to, uh, to recover and to help the families, many of whom are here tonight at the Boulder Theater, survivors who lost their homes, who lost everything in a moment's notice uh, to try to recover and to find some semblance of recovery in the, the months and the years ahead. Professor Dickinson, your family lives in Louisville, one of the communities most affected by the Marshall Fire. What do you remember about that day as the fire was coming towards your community? So our family was actually um, up in the mountains when the fire started. We were driving home, and um, I started getting text messages from friends and family members. My brother uh, was at our house, and he was texting and saying, you know, there's ash. And initially, it really felt like, I mean, again, yeah, it was just a sense of, well, yeah, there's a fire that's in the, you know, in the Marshall open space, but we're okay. And then hearing that, you know, the neighborhood right behind our Costco was on fire, and that was still across the highway, so we still were probably fine, um, and then we weren't, right? And, and then it was very clear that we needed to evacuate. So we got home really quickly, grabbed our dogs, cats, chickens, <laughs> threw everybody in the car, and, and got out of there. And 
Um, initially went to my grandmother's house in Longmont where we actually could just, you know, kind of watch from afar as this cloud of smoke just continued. Um, it was devastating. It was terrifying. And, you know, we really had, had several hours where we had, had no idea if, if our home was going to be there when we got back. By that evening, we knew that we, that our, our family was materially okay, but also that, you know, many, many others weren't. And, um, and that there was a long, a long road to recovery ahead for us yeah. as a community. Rod, summer is typically wildfire season, which is why we're here right now. But the Marshall Fire happened in December. I mean, is, is there a wildfire season anymore? No, there, there isn't a wildfire season in this area. And there hasn't been. Historically, all our largest fire losses have been actually in the fall or winter. Uh, due to the fact that here we, we might get some snow, but then the sun comes out, the wind blows, and, and that snow dissipates. And, and now what we have is a field of vegetation that's either dormant or, or dead, depending on the, the species. But in those seasons, we're getting the Chinook winds, so these strong winds that come through. And those are the most problematic for us. And, and as, as the congressman uh, pointed out, they're very short-term events. The amount of destruction we get, and it's a one-day wonder, we used to call them, you know. When we were ordering more firefighters to most of the fires that any of you have been in the county for, we knew that by the time tomorrow came, there's only mop-up. We know the fire's not going to move anymore because the wind dies and the fire stops. But when you're dealing with over 60-mile-an-hour winds, and in this case over 100-mile-an-hour winds, it's just impossible to, to manage those. Professor Dickinson, you've been serving the community after the Marshall Fire. What have you learned so far? So um, it took us a little bit longer to get it off the ground, but we did end up implementing a survey to look at everything from the evacuation behavior to people's perceptions of, of air quality and, and health impacts to, um, you know, for folks that lost homes, which is about a quarter of the respondents in our survey, whether or not folks were going to rebuild to, you know, support for policies uh, to enhance resilience in the community, both, you know, sort of doing things to make the community safer for a wildfire, but also support for, you know, energy efficiency codes to combat climate change. Um, One thing that I think is really interesting in our findings, and wasn't too surprising for me, is that this is a community that, that, for the most part, embraces the idea that this was part of the climate crisis. Um, So we have, you know, close to 90% of respondents across our communities who think that global global climate change is a major problem, and a little bit less than that, maybe three quarters of respondents who say that they think that climate change contributed to this event in particular. And um, at the same time, right, one one of the things that we um, saw after the fire was that um, Louisville had recently, well, all three communities really have very high um, energy efficiency codes, um, have taken very aggressive actions to to combat climate change and, and to make our energy codes, um, you know, cleaner and, and greener. And it happened that Louisville had passed the, the most stringent and um, climate, you know, aggressive building code just a month before the fire happened. And what we saw in the community was that even though, again, you know, this is a community where people were very supportive in general, and again, a, a majority of our respondents say that local energy efficiency codes are uh, important to combat climate change, we still had a, a large number of the folks that were affected really 
you know, worried about what these new codes were going to mean for their building costs. And, you know, that even culminated in, in public protests. And, um, you know, the city ended up, I think, taking a, a pretty reasonable approach of exempting the, the fire victims from adhering to this brand new code, while also, you know, putting in place a lot of incentives. We're listening to a special broadcast of 1A recorded last week in Boulder, Colorado. The event was part of our Remaking America partnership with KUNC in Northern Colorado. We're looking at ways the government is and is not working for everyone when it comes to wildfire prevention. We're listening to a conversation about the growing threat of wildfires in the West. In Boulder, we got this question from Duane. Wildfires are caused by rising temperatures due to climate change. Louisville is a progressive community with building codes designed to make sure new construction is green and contributes less to climate change. Yet when residents started rebuilding, they pushed back on these green building codes. They claimed green building was too expensive. Is there any state or federal money to help make sure we can afford to rebuild in ways that don't contribute to these disasters recurring? Here's Congressman Nagoose. Yes, there is, and uh, we're working on trying to get more. You know, Rod said something that was so important. This really was not a wildfire. And again, it's, it's tough to sort of envision because I think so many of the folks who are listening to this program have heard about wildfires in Colorado for many years. The most significant wildfire in the history of our state happened two years ago. It burned for three and a half months, the Cameron Peak Fire, as Rod knows, uh, and it was a you know, 200,000 acre fire. This was an urban fire. And if you could just imagine two communities, one community of 12,000 people, another community of 35,000 people, bisected by a major U.S. highway, six-lane highway. And this fire was able to cross over multiple points over that highway, burning down commercial structures, hotels, parking lots. Uh, It's really a paradigm shift, I think, uh, for us in terms of how we think about climate change and the impacts of climate change. Because, of course, we know uh, that this fire was, you know, the drought conditions in our state exacerbated ultimately the conditions that enabled this fire to occur. It was one of the driest Decembers on record here in the state of Colorado. So as we think about the solutions and some of the policy prescriptions that I think we're going to need to enact at the federal level, we're going to have to also do a bit of soul searching about changing and shifting some of the solutions that we perhaps have approved in the past, because this is very different and very unique. And as I try to explain to my colleagues uh, who, you know, serve and represent states on the eastern seaboard, what happened in Louisville and in Superior could very well happen in New Jersey. It could happen in Atlanta. It could happen in Seattle. Any urban community um, is at risk, and we have to take it seriously. Let's go to Tana, who's in the audience with the question about rebuilding. Tana, go ahead. Hi, my name's Tanya. I lost my home in Louisville uh, to the Marshall Fire. So I'm working very hard to get my family back into our house. Um, and also I'm working very hard to get my community back together as one of the many advocates among the fire survivors. Um, so what I'm thinking of is someday in fall 2023, I'm going to be back in my new house and it's gonna be windy, it's gonna be dry, in November, probably, and I'm gonna have to tuck my children into bed. And I'm gonna be thinking, okay, stay calm. (laughs) You know, this isn't gonna happen again. But what I've learned as being part of the fire survivor community and being part of many conversations is that there were a stack of dominoes that fell 
that brought the fire to my neighborhood. And those dominoes are still there. And it's, it's such a complex problem. It goes across multiple governments. And I'm wondering, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a list, but I'm wondering how you advise someone like me who just wants to, I want my community to be rebuilt, but I want it to be safe. And I want us to be able to face the next fire. So Marshall has had multiple ignitions in the past few years. Um, models show that <laughs> the next fire that would start there would blow straight right back to my neighborhood because it would follow the topography of the grassy plains to get there um, in the wind, if it was a windy day. And then when we rebuild our neighborhoods, <laughs> we're not doing it fire resistant because A, we don't even know what the recommendations are for our urban area. B, people don't have the money to spend any extra on their house. And C, well, I forgot what C is, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, we're going to permitting now. It's just, it's a very difficult, oh, the C is that some people don't agree that there's something they need to do and they, they're not gonna do it voluntarily because they think the fire was a fluke. But I know the fire was not a complete fluke. So what do you say to me? I wanna go home, I want my community back, I wanna be safe, and I'm totally daunted by this. So Rod, it sounds to me like Tanya is looking for just some practical guidance about where she goes from here. You know, over the course of my career, both as a consultant and as a, as a firefighter, you know, we used to talk about defensible space all the time. And it's not that I won't say we don't need it anymore, but it's not enough. It's just, it, it, the old days, the idea of defensible space was that it gave us as firefighters a safe place to engage the fire to protect your home. But when there are 100 homes threatened at one time, that sort of goes out the window. It doesn't, we don't have 100 engines to put on each home. So um, we've had to change our thinking a lot. And, and I do feel that it's important to understand that you know, fire is a very natural part of this ecosystem, right? So we're not gonna get rid of fire any more than we're gonna get rid of earthquakes and floods. But what we can do is if we accept to live in these areas, we have got to make our homes or you know, our areas more resilient. And that, can be individually, but it also needs to be at the community level. Uh, because if your house is, is you know, very, very fireproof, not 100%, but all your neighbors are, are still stick frame and, and very flammable, then yes, if that home adjacent to you burns, it's gonna have a risk to your home. You know, there's no easy answer. I can tell you there's a lot of resources for you. Uh, reach out to your fire department, reach out to the state. Um, they have lots of guidance on the, the types of materials we can use. But I do think we have to be uh, a little more, you know, broad in our thinking. Myself as an example, we, we lost our home. Uh, when we rebuilt, we didn't rebuild in the, in the Wooey, by the way, we, went, we rebuilt in town, and I don't know if it was intentional or not, but my home is made of uh, aerated concrete block. It's 10-inch thick block. It's not stick frame. Our walls are raw concrete. Our floor is poured concrete. Now, you might look into that and think maybe we had a little bit of a PTSD on that, but uh, I'll tell you what, that house is not burning down. And, and it wasn't that much more uh, cost to that. And the more people who use these other materials, the cheaper it will be, right? If, if, if 150 homes all want to use that same type of materials, the cost will, savings will show up. So again, it's sort of a broader community perspective of changing how we build. As far as other things, you know, the, you just can't eliminate risk. 
that's, you know, if, if you didn't live here and you moved into a city, you'd have all the risks associated with living in a city. If you live in the Midwest, you got tornadoes. Um, so th there's a reasonable amount of effort that you want to put into being safe, but there's just no such thing as 100% foolproof ways to, to pre prevent yourself from all risk. I, I, it's just something I can tell you personally that we came around to, oh, you know, we, we had those same fears after losing our home, um, but yeah, I, you just have to sort of balance the probability. We, we've used this term wooey a few times so far. That's the, the wildland urban interface where large swaths of vegetation and suburban sprawl mix together. And it's the fastest growing land use type in the nation. That's according to the U.S. Forest Service. So houses in close proximity to that density of vegetation fueled the Marshall Fire's destruction. Rod, explain more about the wooey and the wildfire risk in these areas. And, and maybe from a planning perspective, how we need to think about building more proactively. Right, so the WUI, as we keep referring to, is actually have, there's three categories of that. So if you think of sort of those individual homes on the big lots up, up any of our canyons on the 35 acre lots, right? That's, we call that wildland because it's a continuous fuel with maybe one or two buildings. And then as you move into like say, Four Mile where I lived, where the houses are all on one acre to five acre lots. We call that intermix because you still have enough fuel. And by the way, when I say fuel, I mean anything that burns, vegetation. You have the homes, but you've got all this fuel in between those homes. So you have this sort of consistent fuse to carry the fire. And then the interface is where basically it's the edge of the wild fuels, the wildland fuels coming up against what starts to be the suburban areas. Um, so they, they, are, they are different, but at the end of the day, the, all you're trying to do is minimize the ability of an ember to find a place to get inside your house. And, and believe it or not, it's incredibly challenging because for all the materials I mentioned that my house is made of, houses have to breathe. And so we have to have vent systems. And if you have a dryer, you have an opening. Anything that, that is an opening in your home is where an ember is gonna find its way in. So, it, you know, the winds are pushing those embers, they're hitting wall, they're hitting wall, and then they hit a crack or an opening and they're in. And most homes burn inside out, okay? They don't, it's not this wall of flame that everyone sees in movies. They actually burn very slowly from the inside out. And so what we are trying to come up with is to try to figure out how we can prevent these vents or any openings in the homes that we need from the embers going in. You know, there's, a few cool designs that I've seen that are really impressive in California, but they're not readily available. You know what I mean? They're not, you can't go to Home Depot and get them. So we're getting there and, and the designs are coming. Professor Dickinson, who are some of the more vulnerable populations in the WUI, both here in Colorado and, and across the country? So I think that um, one of the things that, that I think we've been really concerned about are the effects on renters. You know, a lot of the resources, the attention has been focused on, on homeowners. And I think that uh, my husband actually also owns a property management company and, and, you know, thinking about not only the immediate effects on, on renters who were displaced and, you know, maybe didn't have control over the rebuilding, you know, or the, the, the recovery process. I think there are 
really sort of an undercount of the number of homes that were damaged, not even structurally, but the amount of smoke damage um, that, that homes had. And so, you know, we heard stories of, of renters really struggling to, to get their landlords to, you know, uh, pay up and, and do the mitigation that, that they knew was needed. You know, then there was this cascading effect of because we had experienced this loss of, you know, a significant portion of our housing stock, um, prices went up. And, and that sort of caused the secondary displacement of, you know, landlords raising rents and and displacing folks in a in a state in a country that also has a you know a housing cost crisis. Um, so I think these looking at these cascading effects um, uh, of these events is really important as well. We're listening to a special broadcast of One A recorded last week in Boulder, Colorado, in partnership with KUNC Public Radio. Let's get back to our conversation we recorded in Boulder, Colorado last week. Professor Dickinson surveyed residents after the Marshall Fire, and we asked her what she heard from community members about the emergency response and evacuation process. I would say that, um, you know, one of the things we've heard really loudly from the community is that, um, and we experienced this, uh, you know, the, the evacuation notification system, there, there were some holes. Um, so I think, again, I... We knew to evacuate because we were getting texts from, from friends and saw the smoke. I think of our survey respondents, I do have the number in here, there's something less than 20% of folks said that they got any official evacuation notice. And I think part of that was just that it's a really difficult system. And I know that you know that it's, it's a, a balancing act, again, of, of figuring out what the right system is and who should be the one putting out these notices in different, in different events. I think there's work to do there. And I know that, that that's something that um, you know, working with FEMA and, and getting support from, again, from the federal government to, to make these warnings smarter and, and more targeted is something that, that folks could, could definitely um, use. I know that that was a big frustration in, in this event. Congressman, how are you working to re- improve that, that response system? Ultimately, the emergency management systems, generally speaking in our country, are managed at the local level. So these are you know, done by your county sheriff or, in some cases, uh, town councils and city uh, municipal jurisdictions. So we're helping the Boulder County Sheriff's Office here locally secure some federal dollars to upgrade their system. But I think this entire episode raises some important questions about emergency response more broadly, right? And to the extent that we are likely to have many more climate-induced natural disasters for years to come into the future, um, does it make sense you know, from an economies of scale perspective to, to try to leverage more of that within a state system? Are, are there any specific lessons, though, as you, as you look back on it, that, that you've taken away from that experience? The number one issue in every incident is communication. And that's top to bottom from what we've just been talking about. Um, those alert systems, we've got one alert system that works with landlines. Well, who has landlines anymore? A handful of you. So then, all right, we got this new cool system and it works with cell phones, but it can't pinpoint where you are. I had friends in New Jersey got alerted for this. You know, same thing with the NCAR fire. I had people calling me from all over the country going, why am I being told to evacuate? And I should say the NCAR fire was earlier this year. It was after the Marshall fire. It was after the Marshall fire. But so, you know, the technology, it needs to be dialed in. So the communication, that creates problems for us too, because when you pull a trigger on an evacuation, now we've got all these people on the roads and they're moving and we may be trying to get that way and everyone's going this way. 
Uh, let's go to Karen. You had a question about water? Yes, thank you. First of all, thank you for um, speaking on this really important topic um, for us all here. Um, how does the ongoing water crisis and drought affect our readiness and ability to respond to these fires? Thank you. Congressman? It's a great question, uh, and I, I might defer to Rod on, on this, in, in particular because, of course, we're experiencing a water crisis that uh, you know, Colorado uh, ha has not experienced uh, in the modern history of our state, right? We're experiencing the worst drought in a thousand years, obviously very deep and profound implications for upper basin states like Colorado. I would say more broadly, there are other water issues that, that we have to resolve, including our watersheds. I mean, when you're talking about wildfires, um, while this hasn't impacted Boulder or Louisville or Superior, uh, perhaps with respect to the Marshall Fire, our neighbors up north and many of our uh, neighbors and my constituents in Larimer County right now are dealing with a true crisis because of the Cameron Peak fire and the erosion in the soils that ultimately uh, have you know, created the flash floods that we've been experiencing over the last six months and in turn are really impacting their water quality up north and a lot of money, resources at the federal level being expended to do what we can to try to prevent further damage to the water quality up in northern Colorado. We got this question from Bartley, who lost their home. A question for Representative Nagoose. Is there any activity to elevate disparate state laws in regulating insurance companies to the federal level to ensure a more consistent approach to coverage and policy requirements? Bartley also added, most of us were underinsured and will need every dollar of coverage without so much contest from insurance companies. It's a great, great question. And... So I'd say a couple of things. One, something that this audience is, of course, very familiar with, but maybe not for some of the listeners to this program. Underinsurance is the central theme of the recovery in this particular case. Uh, and we learned that, uh, and we have learned that collectively as a state and as a community, um, the hard way. And working with FEMA, their data tells us that uh, this particular incident uh, the community that was impacted had one of the highest underinsurance rates than in any other natural disaster uh, in their recent history. And there are a number of different reasons for that, but it has been a real crisis for our community uh, with you know, so many residents uh, and folks who are trying to rebuild and don't have the resources because of the underinsurance. Uh, I think that at the federal level, it has not been a topic of conversation until very recently. Of course, we have models that have been uh, implemented at the federal level for other natural disasters. The best example, of course, is flood insurance, which is regulated uh, at the national level. And I do think that it's time for us at the federal level to talk about not simply standardizing state laws, because of course, as was mentioned by the questioner, there are some states that are far more aggressive in, I think, holding insurance companies accountable uh, when this type of underinsurance is happening versus other states that have a more permissive attitude, unfortunately, uh, that really does not inert to the benefit of consumers. Uh, but I also think at the federal level, we ought to be having a conversation about a federal program uh, that bakes in the risks around wildfire. Uh, and, you know, that is a very complex conversation, um, but it's one that we're having actively, in particular, those of us who represent Western states uh, that are going to continue to be experiencing wildfires, you know, in the decades to come. So, yes, uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, Rod, I'm going to hear about your personal experience with insurance. As you said, you lost your home. What was that process like for you as you recovered? Well, I, 
I was fortunate. We had a good insurance carrier. Uh, some of the challenges uh, are, you know, there's an emotional, you know, component to this. And when they're asking you to list everything you lost, um, you're not prepared to do that. Um, I, you know, my wife and I, I remember trying. I remember there were days we would take the list out and go, okay, let's, let's go for one room. We'll just try going through that. And you just be like, I can't do this, you know. And it's very difficult. And some of the insurance companies would push their, you know, they said, we need this in 30 days. You have to give us everything. Um, and, and, you know, that's, it's just, it's, it doesn't work that way. Um, we remembered things years later. Literally. I mean, there's stuff where it just pops in your head and you're like, oh, wow, that's right. We lost that. Um, but do your homework. I know for a lot of you that's after the fact, and I, I'm sorry about that. But the rest of you, uh, read your policy. A lot of people thought they were very well covered. Turns out they were not. There's always these little dis, you know, disclaimers and little footnotes, and you got to read those. I mean, Professor Dickinson, you've been surveying members of the community who are recovering from the Marshall Fire. Has this issue of insurance come up in your conversations? What have you been hearing? Yeah, absolutely. So I was just looking at the the numbers. We do have less than 10% of the respondents who who lost homes um, said that they were fully insured. So so it's, you know, as the congressman said, it's uh, um, pretty pretty drastic. Um, you know, one of one of the big things that that I really want to get across is that if we are having challenges rebuilding in this community, where you know not only are we you know financially overall not universally in pretty good shape, but we also have a situation where our local government, our uh, state government, our our federal representatives are sort of all on the same page when it comes to you know the need to build back green and and better. Um, so if we have all those things working in our favor, and it's still very challenging for us to, to accomplish that, um, imagine how difficult it is in, uh, you know, in areas with, with fewer resources and, and that don't have that, that alignment necessarily. So I think, you know, again, drawing the lessons and figuring out how we overcome those obstacles um, here, and also, you know, I think it's really important, you know, if we had... If we had learned the lessons from earlier disasters that affected, you know, places that weren't as privileged, we here in Louisville would be better off right now. So I think it's kind of back to that story of, you know, even though it might feel like, you know, our wealth and our privilege can protect us from the effects of climate change, I think it's really, this, this disaster really brings home that um, materially, yeah, and a lot of community members at the end of the day might financially be okay. That doesn't mean that they're okay, right? And so uh, I think it just really brings home this point that it's really, you know, on all of us to work together to fight this climate crisis because until all of us are okay, none of us are going to be okay. We heard Rod say the Marshall Fire was really you know, was something you couldn't really plan for. But Congressman Nagus, I think many people in this community who have lost their homes are concerned another historic fire could occur sooner rather than later. What's your message to them? My message is I share your concern. Uh, and I think we all should be vigilant and cognizant of the risks and 
ultimately, I think, work collectively together to do what we can to mitigate, as Rod said, against those risks. And we're certainly going to do our part at the federal level to try to secure the funding to do that work. Um, but it's also going to require each and every member of this community, I think, collectively to think outside of the box uh, and to, again, be part of sort of this collective decision-making around a paradigm shift for this particular communities and communities just like ours across the country that are going to be dealing with a changing climate for years to come. Congressman Joan Neguse is a Democrat representing Colorado's 2nd Congressional District in Northern Colorado. He serves on the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. Also with us this evening, Rod Moraga. He's a fire behavior analyst with Precisely. That's a company that provides wildfire data. He's also chairperson of the Colorado Prescribed Fire Council and a firefighter with Left Hand Fire Department and Professor Katie Dickinson. She's a professor in the Colorado School of Public Health's Department of Environmental and Occupational Health. Thanks to you all. This conversation was produced by 1A's Anna Casey and KUNC's Lee Patterson. And special thanks to KUNC staff for hosting us this week. 1A Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And 1A comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. We'll be back in Colorado next year, but until we meet again, I'm Jen White. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) 